Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Stuart Paley. Stuart is an environmental, editorial, and commercial photographer based in the Southern California area. Stuart has worked with clients such as National Geographic, Time Magazine, Wired, and the New York Times, to name a few. Much of Stuart's work is focused on documenting California wildfires, of which he has documented over 100 wildfires in the last five years. In this interview, I speak to Stuart about how he got into photography, what drew him to photographing wildfires, as well as how he prepares to photograph these very intense wildfires. Stuart brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to photography, so I was really excited to get a chance to speak with him about everything he's been doing with his work. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, uh, Stuart Paley, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, definitely, man. I was excited to talk to you. Um, one of my photographer friends kind of turned me on to your work, and you're doing some really amazing stuff, so I was really excited to talk Thank to you. Thank you. Um, but I guess to start off, I was kind of curious, like, where you grew up and, like, how you kind of got into photography initially. Sure. So I grew up here in Southern California and uh, growing up in SoCal, wildfire in general is sort of on the periphery of, of your life. Uh, it's kind of like hurricanes in Florida uh, or tornadoes in Oklahoma. So these things are always kind of on the outskirts, especially since I grew up at the beach. And in general, I've always been interested in how humankind interacts with the environment, how we control it, how we utilize it, how we harness it, how we extract resources, how we succeed, but more often how we fail. So I've always been interested in uh, environmental issues in general. Mm. And then like, how did you kind of get into photography initially? When did you kind of first pick up a camera? So I've, uh, I probably picked up my first camera when I was 12 or 13, just like a little Olympus point and shoot film camera in middle school, high school. I photographed for yearbook, newspaper, and just sort of always enjoyed having a camera with me. And eventually, uh, you know, I got a DSLR when I was probably 16 or 17, a very early digital, very primitive early digital one and sort of grew into it from there. Cool, man. And when you kind of first picked it up, what kind of stuff were you shooting? Like, uh, like you say, you're kind of doing the yearbook and stuff like looking at your work, it's kind of interesting how you kind of navigate between like photojournalism, fine art, you do advertising. Um, was like photojournalism kind of always your, your kind of like attraction to that starting out or? That's a great, that's a great question. I think that, I think that I'm very much attracted to certain moments and things that are going on in the world, especially nowadays as they relate to climate change and environmental issues. But a lot of the work that first influenced me when I was starting out photographing was more of landscape, fine art type of work, images of the night sky, you know, all these beautiful landscapes that, um, Galen Rowell or Ansel Adams would shoot out in the Sierras. Uh, Galen Rowell, who passed away in the 90s, he shoots beautiful yeah. uh, medium format transparencies on Fuji Velvi. And just seeing them in a gallery just would absolutely light up. So that use of, of color and light sort of to illustrate the environment around us, that's what really what captivated me early on. And I think just my experience photographing everyday moments at you know, college newspaper, high school newspaper, those things kind of brought me into the present moment, more of a human angle of things. So I think those two influences have, have kind of combined where I'm trying to sometimes do fun art related stuff or documentary photojournalism or just hard news. So I definitely sort of have my, my feet in a couple different places. Yeah, it's really interesting. And was like photography something you ended up like studying in college or when did you kind of decide, like, did you always kind of envision doing this as a career or when did you kind of start taking it more serious, I guess? Mm -hmm. Well, in undergrad, I actually majored in finance, and I was a photography minor, but I, at the time, I still thought photography was sort of more of a fun side gig. Mm. And then when I was a junior in 2000, 2009, when the economy crashed and we were in the financial crisis, uh, the job opportunities and prospects for business and finance weren't looking great. And I was interning at a bank at the time in the internship because of what was going on in the financial industry at this at this retail financial services bank was so toxic and terrible yeah. that I said, I don't know if this is what I want to be getting into. So, uh, And there were some other things that happened along the way, but I said, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to stay in school. I'm going to go to grad school for photojournalism and, and pursue this dream that I have. And so I ended up going to the University of Missouri for 
grad school and that gave me a couple years to, to stay in school while the economy recovered and I sort of went into uh, photography after that and haven't looked back. That's awesome, man. Moving from Southern California to Missouri must have been interesting, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, abso- absolutely. So it um, it's a big change from California being in, in Missouri and then in the Midwest too where I went to SMU and undergrad in Texas. Yeah. But I think it's great because all our life experiences sort of influence who we are and I think the more well-rounded experiences you have, the better. And living in a place where um, you know, culturally in some ways very different from where I grew up. I, I got it, you know, I picked up country music and a couple pairs of cowboy boots and kind of, <laughs> nice. um, you know, got experience. Texas is a little bit more of the South and I'd say Missouri is a little bit more of the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, but Columbia was interesting where Mizzou is because it's sort of at a crossroads. I mean, during the civil war, it was known as little Dixie because of the, uh, amount of slaveholding plantations there that farmed, uh, cotton and other crops because of the floodplain from the Missouri river created a uh, pretty fertile soil for that North of the Mason Dixon line. But you go South like to, to Southern Missouri and it's very, very much uh, the South, but you go to Northern Missouri and it feels much more like the Midwest. So, um, you know, like anything else that was interesting just for like overall experience going into other environmental work, learning that there's a lot of regional nuance to places and that you can't really shoehorn a certain place based on a reputation it has. Yeah, for sure. And, and when you kind of got to Missouri and you're, you're studying photojournalism, um, did you kind of have a goal in mind for like what you wanted to do? Like, did you think you're going to be like a newspaper photographer or what kind of what kind of goals do you have and what kind of stuff were you working on once you got there? Well, early on, I sort of thought I'd like to go do disaster or conflict photography, but very quickly I realized that a um, it wasn't very practical from a financial and life standpoint, but also from safety, mental health, and a lot of other reasons. So I uh, decided that I'd sort of turn my lens figuratively and literally to issues that are more domestic and and things that are sort of in our backyard. And that's one thing I learned that you don't have to travel around the world to tell a story. I mean, a lot of this. There's a lot of very powerful things going on in our own backyards, and it's one of the reasons I got into photographing wildfires is mm. when I moved back to California in 2013, the drought was getting really bad here in the state, yeah. and we were getting a lot more fires, and the, 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 the rioting that was out there at the time attributed some of it to climate change and to the drought. And I found myself in this position with these huge fires happening within a couple hours drive of my house being in, in the L.A. basin. And I said, hey, I'm going to start photographing these yeah. and, and make a little project out of it. And at that time, I didn't know exactly what it would become. And unfortunately, some of the, the prognostications that were made now seven years ago have have come to fruition in a severe way. So so, you know, I'm still here telling the story. But um, it, it, it is uh, it's kind of crazy the path that we end up taking and where we end up. Yeah, definitely. It's an interesting thing about photography. Like I've talked to so many photographers and like you can have a plan in mind of what you want to do, but it's just such a interesting path. And I'm sure like as a freelance photographer yourself, like on a given month, you know, you don't know what's going to come your way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's exactly. Well, and I think that's one thing too with the industry these days is you have to be adaptable. And I think one thing this advice comes out a lot because I think it has a lot of truth mm. is that you want to find a niche. And I guess for me, it's photographing climate related disasters and whether that's a tenable long term thing, both for my own physical and, and mental health and for viability. Uh, you know, I, I definitely question that sometimes, but right now I feel that um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely proud of the work I do, but more importantly, it's it's telling a story that not a lot of the other people get to see, and it's about informing stakeholders out here in California, homeowners, first responders, policymakers, businesses. I'm showing them what they may not get to see because they're not allowed in and, and letting them see the severity of what's happening mm. uh, uh, to us out here, the impact on firefighters, the impact on homeowners who are losing their houses, the impact on uh, the forest health. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of issues at play here, but as far as finding your niche, I think that it's important to specialize, but uh, from a general perspective, too, as a photographer, you should be prepared, uh, especially when you're getting started, take any assignment you can as long as it's not it's decently paid and it's not a rights grab. Yeah. And just really build uh, your – cut your teeth, so to speak. Learn how to do lighting. Learn how to do environmental portraits. I can't tell you how many requests I get for portraits and, and pictures of people. And then that's also proven to be a, a nice source of income when it's not fire season yeah. or things like that. So while you need to have a niche that you're known for, in my opinion, don't be afraid to branch out and build multiple streams of income. And that's also um, licensing your work. Uh, speaking of people are interested in selling prints, if people are interested in buying your prints, because at the end of the day, as a freelancer, uh, again, it's just important to to not be dependent on one certain thing. 
Yeah, for sure. And I noticed you kind of have like two different websites. It's like stuartpally.com, which has all your, your uh, Terra Flama stuff and all different projects you've worked on. But then you also have uh, Pally Creative. I noticed that you kind of you kind of separated the commercial work from your more, I guess, fine art and personal work kind of. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, the Paley Creative at this point, it's that sort of encompasses the the public speaking that I do and some of the image licensing and some of the other things that are not necessarily purely photographic. So mm. I view that as an umbrella platform that encompasses and literally why it's called Paley Creative of the, the different creative endeavors that I do. Of course, photography is still my core in about 75% of the work I do, but I found that um, – you know, sometimes people want consultations on certain things or how to photograph for their business and things like that. Or, you know, uh, news organizations want consultation on how to cover wildfires and how to do it safely. And, and so I decided that there was room in there to to kind of expand that. And of course, uh, you know, anybody, you know, photographers I know will ask me for help covering a fire. I'm always happy to, to give them time. But, you know, some large media organizations have approached me about, you know, working with them as a consultant or speaking at seminars on yeah. how to safely cover these things. And that's something I'm, I'm happy, you know, that that's something I've started doing. And the reason, again, is the terraflamma.org is specifically for the terraflamma project and my wildfire work yeah. and then stuartpaley.com is sort of my overall portfolio so there's some wildfire some landscape work and some environmental portraiture but it's all sort of uh, a, you know a similar style and then the paley creative site is more of the uh, you know every everything else so to speak so i think it's important when a client ask you to see your portfolio or is interested in examples of work that you have tailored examples already ready to go in in a couple different fields and don't be afraid to cut a custom edit for a client especially if you really want to work with them i mean recently i photographed for a, a pretty large cannabis company out here in california and it was a lifestyle shoot of their founders and board of directors and senior uh, team leaders basically out in the desert like just kind of almost like a fashion shoot and their whole wow. angle is just showing the regular people that they employ in the community and that was really cool because that was a lot of the environmental portraiture that I've done out in the field at wildfires and other projects being applied to a corporate client so there's also a lot of crossover and that's the thing clients will seek you out for your style that client specifically sought me out because one of the co-founders uh, just grew up being read stories about wildland firefighters and forest fires and love that I was able to do environmental work yeah. and environmental portraiture but I also had this backstory so a uh, client, you know, the other thing is, is do what you're passionate about and, and, and do work and do personal projects that are important to you. If you have time, mm -hmm. you know, one day a month or one day a week to get out there and go work on something, your personal work is what's going to help you build your vision as well. Yeah, for sure. And like when you got out of school, what was kind of your first step into the business? Like, have you been freelance your whole career? Did you ever kind of work at a newspaper or do any like assisting or stuff like that? Or what was kind of was kind of your? Oh, absolutely. So I did. I did quite a bit of assisting and I was a full time apprentice for six months at the Orange County Register while I was finishing my master's project. So uh, Tuesday through Saturday, I'd work a 40 hour week basically as a, a full time photojournalist at the Register. That was a, a contracted person on the weekends. I'd go out in the salt and sea to work on my master's project wow. there, which was a photographic essay of uh, water and environmental issues yeah. there. So essentially, I was basically shooting anything under the sun during the week and then working essentially on my personal work unpaid over the weekends. And then I was fortunate enough to live at home at the time, and I was paid $10 an hour minimum wage at the time to work full time at the paper Damn. without benefits. But I was able to take that, what I was being paid, and basically put that towards groceries and gas for for my master's project. And even within that, I picked up a few weddings on the side and a gig here and there. So that sort of made me, help me build my portfolio and work. And then when I finished uh, my master's project and finished at the register, I decided to go. Uh, personally, I didn't feel that there was enough of a future in having a staff job at a newspaper. So I decided that I was going to go uh, uh, freelance and based on some of the work I was being offered and getting, uh, frankly, for me, it was a lot more palatable to, yeah. to go that route and, and also for the freedom of things. And I'm very much a proponent uh, from a freelance perspective of one of the reasons you work on your own is that you maintain control and copyright of all your work. I don't sign work for higher contracts or I negotiate them where uh, I, I'm retaining rights to the work and, and the client is still happy with what they get. But um, you know, I, I think that from getting started in the freelance world is that you don't want to dive into it cold turkey. You want to have a day job mm. or have a spouse or be in a place where you can be partially subsidized because if you dive in the deep end, it could take you six months or a year 
to build a reliable revenue stream and what are you going to do in the meantime yeah yeah it takes a lot of time to build up your name and everything um yeah because i was interested like looking at your work you cover all these fires which is like obviously you've done some really cool like fine art i saw you did like some fine art shows where it'll be like in a gallery um you had you published a book um but then um it's 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 news so it's like photojournalism so when you're when you're documenting these fires are you like licensing them are you throwing them up on the wire like how do you normally when you're photographing these fires is it more just for yourself or like how do you kind of get this work out there at this point it's a variety of things on occasion uh i work with zuma here in san clemente they're a smaller wire service yeah. i'll send images to them here and there and they're very good and respectful of photographers copyright and that gives me a lot of flexibility but you know, I don't really get a lot of income from stuff on the news wires. I just send that out so I have a legitimate function as a photojournalist at these fires when I'm not specifically on assignment. But, for example, two weeks ago at the fires in California, the Kincaid fire and some of the ones we had in L.A., I was on assignment for the Washington Post. Mm. And uh, that's been a really great relationship with them that they've given me a lot of autonomy and license to work, do my work. Uh, and trust me that I'm able to deliver them images that they need for their stories on time. And uh, I'm glad that they've that East Coast publications and New York Times has done a good job with other photographers too yeah. and as has the Wall Street Journal of investing the resources to get photographers and writers out to the front lines of these fires because I guarantee you if like 30,000 houses had burned down in New York and 100,000 acres had burned last year in, in Manhattan instead of the campfire in paradise, yeah. the coverage would have been a lot different. And, and and I'm not trying to say that the East Coast navel gaze is on itself because that's a pretty broad brush. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like the New Yorker just wrote an article about fires in, in – in, they're like the fires in San Francisco and like the Kincaid fire was 100 miles away from SF. And it's kind of this like regional – it just it felt like that it was just lip service to what was going on here. So yeah. going back to, to kind of all the the income streams. So uh, I'm glad that East Coast publications, some of them are putting resources into because sometimes I'll photograph for a newspaper. Sometimes I'll photograph for a magazine. Uh, but I make sure that for the most part, the contracts, I retain rights because I'll license the images throughout the year. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, uh, you know, a magazine needs it for a story on climate change. I've licensed images of like a water pump on a fire engine to the company that manufactures that water pump yeah. and for an advertisement and that was like a nice chunk of change so mm. you have to be smart about because it's expensive to photograph fires i mean i went to a couple weeks of fire school i've spent thousands of dollars on safety equipment yeah. you know a truck that you know radios a truck that'll get me there um you know maintaining all my equipment that gets damaged every year there's a lot of costs associated with covering these fires and just sometimes waiting around for them to happen and so i think it's appropriate for independent photojournalists to make sure that they have rights to that work so they can recoup their costs throughout the year yeah for sure and it's like working under an assignment is that like something you enjoy do you like collaborating with like an editor or do you feel like it kind of boxes you in um or do they kind of usually just kind of give you free reign to kind of do your thing at this point uh, it, it's usually a little bit of both. It depends on the fire. Sometimes I'll have free reign or a certain idea. They say, hey, focus on evacuees or focus on firefighters or focus on the aftermath. There'll be sort of general directives that I have, but occasionally there'll be a story. For example, uh, it ran A1 in the Washington Post in October 2017 in the aftermath of the Tubbs fire in Sonoma County, and I had to go in and find a property that people – they hid in the pool – they sat in the pool overnight as the fire burned their house down wow. to survive, and they walked out, and they left a note and drew a note with rocks that said, walk out. And I, my assignment was to go find the house yep. and photograph the aftermath of the house, and I was the first person who'd been back there since they left. And, you know, you're kind of driving around down power lines and going off-road because the road's blocked by trees getting back there. And there's sometimes, like, you know, you, you, you really are sort of problem-solving on the fly to, to find a certain story directive. Other times, like at the Kincaid fire – the fire is burning, you know, a thousand, two thousand acres an hour, and you're just trying to find out where the fire is and stay in front of it and stay safe and make yeah. pictures and stay out of firefighters' way, and it's just complete uh, chaos trying to balance everything. Yeah, that's wild. Like when you first started shooting, like what was the first fire you documented, and like, uh, do you remember your, your kind of like headspace going into this? Because like the photos you take are really intense and like. Uh, scary. I can't imagine it being in some of these environments you're, you're photographing in. Um, but what was kind of the beginning? What was kind of the first fire you documented? What do you kind of remember about it? 
Well, the first fire I documented was sort of a moderately sized fire out in Riverside County, and it didn't. It burned a couple homes and some really beautiful ranch homes up on a hill. And I was very kind of just struck by this collision of humankind and nature. Didn't really know what I was doing. Was a little bit uh, scared, but it wasn't too crazy, and I was able to document it. But about uh, the next summer, when I really started photographing fires, this was in 2013, we had the powerhouse fire up in Los Angeles County. Yeah. It burned 30,000 acres and hit Lake Hughes really hard and sadly destroyed about 100 or more homes there. And I was there, and the second day the fire was windy. There was fire everywhere. Uh, and I didn't understand fire behavior. I didn't understand fire operations. I didn't understand a whole lot about the wildfire world. And at that point, uh, you know, I had a close call and it was pretty scary because basically I was in there not doing what I'm doing or not knowing what I was doing. And after that, I said, hey, if I'm going to keep doing this, I need to get fire training, all the safety gear, and I need to make safety a priority. And since then, that's always been a rule for me is that no photo is worth compromising your safety or putting yourself in the way of first responders. Yep. You got to be safe first and then and only then can you take photos. And there's a lot of situations even now where all where something's not safe and I'll hang back or won't do something because I'm concerned about safety. And I'm really proud of that because I have never had any serious injuries or any damage to any equipment or vehicles as a result of that other than than minor things here and there because I've tried to put safety first, knock on wood. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, cuz like that's another thing I was kind of curious like when you're first starting to do this, like, uh, do you, are you just basically going out there on your own? Like, do you have to have a permit to shoot these type of things? Like, have you ever had issues where uh, first responders, uh, do they have, like, an attitude with you showing up and being in the mix? Or how does it usually work? Like, you're pretty much just on your own kind of out there pretty much? Well, in California, we have a law in the books, California Penal Code 409.5, subsection C. And if you're credentialed media, you are allowed into a disaster area that's close to the general public. So that's fire, earthquake, flood, anything that is not an active crime scene. And as long as the incident commander of the disaster has it closed off, say, like a narrow one-lane road, yeah. that you know, where like a news van wouldn't beat a fire engine turning around. Other than that, you pretty much get into the fire, and as long as you're not on private property, yeah. you have free reign. But the flip side of that is, is you're on your own. You shouldn't expect to be saved or rescued by first responders if something happens. So you need like – your own safety equipment, food, water, spare tires, a way to get out. I mean, you really need to be self-sufficient in those in those ways. But it's a very great uh, a law that I'm grateful for in California. But it's also balanced. I think that journalists who go to fires and other disasters need to be safe and not make themselves a safety liability because laws laws can only be changed. But if it wasn't for that media access law, I don't think any of the photographers who are out here doing work in California could have done the same body of work that now exists. And I think that by and large, California of any area in the world that's affected by severe wildfires has the strongest, most powerful visual documentation as a result of that access that we have. Mm. Yeah, it, it must be interesting. What is the response? Because you're out there photographing and then there's all these firefighters and um, like, have you built relationships with these guys over time being that you're out there shooting this? Uh, what's the kind of, like I said, is there ever any time where the, there's like a, a bad attitude towards you being out there in the mix where these guys are trying to put the fire out or what's that kind of relationship like? Very rarely there's negative attitudes. For the most part, I've developed uh, professional relationships and friendships with many firefighters, and by and large, they are the kindest, most giving, selfless people out there with the incredible heart of service, and I've realized that for most firefighters do it because they care about making a difference, and they're very generous people, and it takes a really certain mindset of giving to be a firefighter or first responder in general for that matter, whether it's a search and rescue or dispatcher or ambulance driver or support. There's there's a lot of people that, that help fight these fires, and, and because of that gracious attitude, I've just tried to piggyback on that and learn about how firefighters think, how they act, and, and try and uh, emulate that to a certain extent when I'm at fires to better understand fire behavior and occasionally sometimes you know people will not be jazzed on it or will be a little gruff but you just have to understand that sometimes they've seen houses burn down they may pull bodies out of rubble they've been up for 24 hours and haven't eaten uh you know the firefighters experience a lot of trauma and ptsd too they're also human and so you just have to understand that whether it's somebody who's lost their home or been evacuated it could be the worst day of their life and you have to make sure that you are always empathetic and a human being first mm. and not to take anything personally but again vast majority of people uh firefighters out there are just uh you know sometimes they're too busy working to talk and uh, but they're they're all you know they're 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 for the just really really people that i i have tremendous respect for 
Yeah, there's one photo you shot, which I think last year, I think it was Time Magazine put it in, was it the top 100, uh, I think, I forget the title, like most powerful photos of 2018, and it was like a photo of a guy running out in the, running out of his house, burning down in the middle of the night, he's just wearing, I think it's this boxer shorts and a t-shirt, uh, really intense photo, like, uh, how does this kind of weigh on you over time where you're, where you're seeing, like you said, it's like this is the worst day of most people's lives where everything they own, their home, is being burned down. Um, d does it start to wear on you at times, like the stress of this kind of being around this much of an intense situation? Yes, uh, absolutely. And that image you're referring to is of Masal Barrows running out of his home at 3 o'clock in the morning in Thousand Oaks at the Wolseley Fire, which coincidentally uh, it will have been – exactly one year when that fire started in about two hours. And that picture I took at three o'clock in the morning, uh, it would be Saturday, this coming Saturday morning, early tomorrow morning. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny that you, you mentioned that, but, uh, yeah, there is an effect on me. And I, and I think it has to be put in perspective, right? As journalists, we, and especially as freelancers, we willingly go to these fires. So we, we always have to remember that no one's forcing us to go to these things. We're not firefighters on uh, assignment that are obligated to go there and that we can always walk away if we need to, at the same time, um, you see this stuff as a journalist and you're seeing trauma and people going through terrible things and you experience vicarious trauma through that. And if you don't acknowledge what you see and process it in whatever way, whether that's resting or talking to a therapist or spending time with family, you will eventually uh, uh, develop symptoms uh, of early PTSD and things like that. So you absolutely need to take care of yourself in these situations, but also put it into perspective. You know, other people suffer quite, quite a great deal more in what journalists go through uh, sure. somewhat pales in comparison, but at the same time, it's, it's serious and you need to take your own uh, emotional mental well-being very seriously and take care of it as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and like you mentioned, you went through wildfire training yourself. Like how, how important was that to go through that program um, with everything that you do in photographing? Did did you kind of, after you went through that training, did it kind of help your photography and how you kind of document these things? Yes, it, it really did. So I got sponsored for fire training, both with the U.S. Forest Service here in Los An the Los Angeles area. And I also went to a private wildfire academy in Arizona. So between that, that was two weeks of basic wildland fire training. So I learned everything from radio communications to hose lays to deploying a fire shelter and then the right way to tie your fire boots. So that really helped inform me about fire operations, fire jargon, weather, fire behavior, fuels, topography, a lot of things that have helped influence my coverage. And because of that, and the experience of firefighters who've let me ride along, them at or ride along with them at fires, I've been able to develop a knowledge of how fires work. So I, I, I kind of have an idea if a fire is going to get really bad, where it might be going. That allows me to more efficiently efficiently place myself or tell a story when I'm at a fire because I understand sort of the forces driving it. Yeah. Um, and you know, for like the, the common person listening who maybe not doesn't live in an area where fires are quite as common, like as in Southern California and things like that. Um, is there like a common like thread to how these fires start? Uh, is it like you said, is it like seasonal? Um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about like how uh, these fires in general, like how they start. Like I know you've covered, I think over a hundred. Is there like a common thread to how they start usually, or? Yeah, there, there's a wide variety. So to preface your question, we've got about 40 million people in California and about 10 million of those people, and I would argue it's more now, uh, live in the wildland urban interface, which is where human development houses businesses meets the wildland, which could be forests or brush or open areas. And those areas where that intermix happens in the wildland urban interface is where we get a lot of damaging and destructive wildfires. So uh, there are very, ten, you know, 10 million plus people at risk in California alone. With this, and in California, 95% of wildfires are human-caused. However, those human causes range from the negligent to the ridiculous to arson. I mean, uh, we have power lines, that down power lines that start fires, people dragging chains uh, on a boat trailer, people using a metallic weed whacker, golf clubs sparking into the brush, faulty hot tub wiring, uh, a flare being knocked off the road, all sorts of things when it's hot and dry and windy will will cause an ignition. And when you've got 40 million people in a state on a bad fire day, all it takes is one person doing something dumb and you get a big fire. 
Yeah, it's really intense. I was in Los Angeles last week, and I it was my first experience. I was over on the 405 driving to the valley, and I'd never seen anything like it. It, it was over by the Getty Museum, and literally the hill was on fire. Uh, it, it was really intense. Like, when, when you're going to go out, like, with that fire, like, when you kind of hear it starting, like, do you go out with a plan of, like, how you're going to document it? Um, are you just listening? Are you constantly, like, listening to the radio or things like that? Or, like, how do you kind of, w- once you kind of hear a fire starts, like, how do you how do you work from that starting point, I guess? Well, that fire that you're talking about, the Getty Fire, actually happened in the footprint of the 1961 Bel Air Fire, which two days ago was the anniversary of it. And I watched a really bad 30-minute film from the 1960s that the L.A. County Fire Department put on about it. So a lot of these fires are cyclical. They happen in the same footprint under the same conditions, but often decades apart. So the 1961 Bel Air Fire burned uh, the same area that uh, the Getty Fire burned, the fire that you're talking about up yeah. up in uh, – Brentwood, but the uh, the Getty Fire was a lot smaller, but Tiger Tail Drive got hit very hard at the Getty Fire, and that entire street was destroyed in 1961, too. So, uh, you know, I, I study historic fire behavior a lot. I read books about fire. I'm, I'm kind of a lifelong student of fire, so that when I, when uh, you know certain weather conditions exist, I read the weather report twice a day this time of year. I'm friends with fire meteorologists, and I sort of get every week sort of a rundown of what's going on. But um, I'll follow Twitter. I have friends who are firefighters or off-duty firefighters that will text me if something happens. And so I've developed a network of uh, information, if you will, that I, I sort of know when something's going on, and I try and find out about it quickly. And then based on what the fire is doing and where it is and weather conditions, uh, I'll make a decision of whether to cover it or not. Mm, interesting. And, like, how do they usually – these fires end up, like, going out? Like, how do these firefighters – what are some of the techniques they they, they use to combat some of these – because some of these fires are huge. It's just, like, acres and acres. And, like, how do they usually fight these fires? It, uh, well, it depends on where it is. Sometimes uh, if the fire is way out in the middle of nowhere, they'll just let it burn and, and sort of manage it, make sure it doesn't hit anything serious. Uh, because, again, uh, we need to also recognize that wildfire is part of the landscape and fire is part of the landscape in most of the world. And especially so in California, that fire intervals, intervals in Mediterranean climate and chaparral terrain are a natural thing. But, of course, uh, fire suppress- there was a lot of historic fire suppression, so we're sort of having a correction of fuels there but we're also experiencing a delay of the winter onset so of getting our rains that make fuels wet enough so they won't burn our fuels are critically and in some cases record dry here in california because it hasn't rained and it usually rains by now and that part of that can be attributed to to uh uh, effects in climate change, climate whiplash, meaning that the rainy season is shorter and more intense and that our dry seasons are longer. And there's a lot of research being done on that right now that's pretty fascinating. But to your question about how it's combated, uh, they'll usually put armies of firefighters and engines to protect homes, airplanes to drop flame retardant, yeah. hot shark crews to go out there and hike and cut fire line, bulldozers. But when you get these hot, fast, wind-driven fires like today it's the one-year anniversary of the campfire in paradise there was nothing as long as that wind was blowing in timber to stop that fire the only thing they could do to firefighters credit was to get people out of the way and save lives um and after just seeing the 40-minute documentary on netflix with some of the footage seeing that fire behavior there was nothing in human power that could have been done to fight that fire and we're seeing that more often now where all you can do is just get people out of the way yeah it's really intense um is there like a overall goal with like everything you're doing, documenting these fires? Is there like anything you would hope people would take away from looking at these photos and um, this kind of the changing climate and things like that? Sure. Well, it's uh, the, the goal of the project's threefold. The first of which is to show the public the work that men and women are doing out there on the fire line, from firefighters to Um, You know, sometimes law enforcement to the Forest Service to support staff, they all have a really important role to play in this. And they're spending more time away from their families and uh, divorce rates going up, PTSD and other mental health issues. That's already higher amongst uh, versus the general population. It's already higher amongst first responders. And anecdotally, that's increasing because they're spending more time battling these blazes. Secondly, I started this project. I thought it was, you know, obviously I've always believed that climate change exists. But at first I thought, oh, this is just drought. This is just cyclical. And the more I learned about fires and the more I read studies and learned about the numbers and talked to fire ecologists that um, one of the influencers of fire behavior is climate change. There are hotter, drier, windier days per year that are conducive to large fire growth. And then you get stronger whiplash 
we had a very wet winter and it's been very dry. So we've got a large amount of brush that's now critically dry and that's leading to worse fire seasons. And of course, where and how we build, uh, most of paradise was in the wildland urban interface. You had homes intermixed amongst trees, how we build is one thing and how we manage fuels to a certain extent, but fuel management is sort of, uh, it, it, you know, around clearing your defensible space, cutting fire breaks, that's all really important. But as we saw in the campfire in Paradise, which had fire breaks, when it's wind-driven, sometimes it won't stop it. So climate change certainly plays a role, but there are other contributing factors too. None of it exists in a vacuum, but a lot of it is human caused. And I, another point I want to make too is California has only had a fraction of the acreage burned thus far this year compared to 2017 and 2018. Uh, and I think a lot of that's just luck. I think a lot of it is firefighters adapting their responses to the fires and kind of learning over the last two years. But we're not out of the woods yet. We've got Santa Ana winds coming up next week. Uh, it, we don't have any rain in sight. And all it's going to take is one serious wind event to cause a lot more fire problems. And I really hope and I'm optimistic that that doesn't happen. But statistically, we get eight Santa Ana wind days in November. Yeah. And we've had a couple. And, and I, you know, I have to look at sort of the history of this month as well. Yeah, man, it's scary stuff, man. Um, and is there like any like overall like uh, common like health uh, issues that some of these firefighters and first responders or uh, that they obviously PTSD, but is there any other common health issues they have this being around this much fire? Even yourself, is it something you worry about this being exposed to like so much smoke or how do you kind of handle all that, I guess? Well, a couple of the effects, of course, are uh, higher rates of different types of cancer. Uh, and this is in structural firefighters for because you're exposed to certain carcinogens, heavy metals in burning structures. So uh, overall health effects for a lot of wildland firefighters are uh, mental health effects, of course, PTSD, depression, things like that. But also sprained ankles, you know, but your knees are all busted up from humping 65 pounds of gear up and down a mountain for 20 years, yeah. things like that. Um, you know, there are burn injuries. There are people who get killed, uh, long-term lung problems from overall smoke inhalation, lung cancer, uh, hearing problems from being around chainsaws and heavy equipment. So there's a myriad of, of health effects that, that firefighters are, are exposed to. Yeah. And um, another thing I was kind of curious about, like looking at your work, like we were saying, like you kind of bounce between like commercial and fine art and then everything you're doing with the fire stuff. Um, with the, the fire photos, do you approach that as like a tr traditional photojournalist, like as in the respect to like uh, retouching and things like that? Or, or, or do you kind of are you open to like uh, using Photoshop or how do you kind of approach approach like the creative aspect of the fire stuff, I guess? No, every every fire is photographed from a very strict photojournalistic standpoint, and I sort of use the New York Times photojournalism ethics worksheet that was sent to me a few years ago by one of their editors as sort of my rubric. And I actually did a research project on this in grad school about what's generally accepted in the photojournalistic community for editing versus not, and that's sort of what I subscribe to. So I mean, I'll shoot long exposures on a tripod, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'll shoot in raw and do some highlight recovery and push the shadows and you know do a little bit of an S curve and sharpen it and export it. But other than that, you know, the editing's all within best photojournalistic practices, color correction, cropping, little burning and dodging. But nothing's ever, ever cloned or faked, like none of that stuff. That goes against everything that I've learned and do as a uh, photographer and journalist when I'm at wildfires. Now, of course, if I'm doing a commercial assignment, that's totally different. But again, uh, it really boils down to photographer holding themselves accountable and truthful to their own ethics and their beliefs and and and, and what's best. And of course, with the fire, it's always about documenting what I see in, in reality. And so again, everything's kind of held to best photojournalistic practices. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I noticed you published a book um, with your fire photos, Terra Flama. Um, I was kind of curious, like how that came about and how was the process kind of publishing a book? What was kind of your overall overall goal putting that together? <laughs> well, a book, honestly, a book overall is kind of a pain, but it's a great way to have a body of your work that you can readily share with other people and get your work out there and kind of have something, uh, so to speak, official that that's there. So it took two years to put the book together. The publisher approached me. Um, a book, you don't really make money on a book. Again, it's a way to get your work out there. So I'll sell copies here and there, give them as gifts, yeah. or people will buy them off of Amazon. But I'm really proud of it because the publisher did a great job putting it together. And it's essentially a, a physical portfolio I can carry around that sort of uh, 
uh, puts together. It's like a monograph of the first, I guess, five or six years of the project. Yeah, and and with the photos, Terraflama, I believe all the photos were taken at night. Um, what was kind of your approach with that? Why did you kind of decide to only um, kind of document the night stuff versus day? Um, I guess what was your kind of thought process in putting those photos together? Well, initially, uh, well, Terraflama is while as wildfires at night is specifically the long exposures, but Terraflama in general is my photojournalistic documentary work of the fires too. So the specific wildfires at night was sort of the more fine art component of the project. And the goal was to show fires in a different way. Fire is its own light source. It's beautiful, but also terrifying. And I wanted to get different from like planes dropping flame retardant firefighters with like a shovel and kind of get away from that typical wire service type images we see mm -hmm. and try and create some visual order out of, uh, for lack of a better description, something that's chaos. And Vincent Van Gogh is one of my favorite artists, painted a lot in, drew a lot in pastel and other things. Yeah. Uh, he's got a painting called Starry Night from the uh, oh, 1880s. Yeah. And that, that picture has always influenced me. And he said, and this is attributed to him, that I often think that the night is more colorful than the day. And when you're photographing wildfires, the color palette is just insane. So, you know, for me, it was a way to kind of work with you're not working with the sun. You're not working with the strobe. You're working with burning carbon based life that is creating this light. Mm. No, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, because I noticed that, yeah, you, a lot of your work, even some of your, it looks like your personal work, like under the stars. Um, it's a lot of like long exposure stuff. Like what is it about the long exposure work that that you enjoy, I guess? Well, I've always loved photographing at night and been drawn to open places in the night sky. So I think that when I first started taking pictures of the fires at night, I just it was an afterthought. I just had my tripod with me and I saw the fire burning on the horizon. I'm like, hey, this could be cool. And I made a few frames and it was like, you know, stars in the Milky Way and then the fire. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, while I'm covering the fires for wire service or newspaper, yep. I'm just going to stick around and, and make long exposures. And that sort of people saw the pictures and it got picked up and it sort of went viral and snowballed to some extent into this project. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and when you're going out to photograph a fire, like um, like what what's kind of your uh, traditional like kit? Like what kind of gear are you bringing with you on a, when you're shooting a fire? And I think you mentioned earlier on in the interview about how it can get expensive with gear and things. Is, is there like a, has there been some negative things with uh, your gear wise shooting fires? Like does it get damaged from all the smoke and whatnot or things like that? Well, from a personal protective equipment standpoint, I carry the same stuff that a wildland firefighter would carry. Nomex shirt, pants, fire helmet, fire shelter, fire, specially built fire boots, yep. uh, radio, goggles, etc. And then camera-wise, uh, I, I, I usually carry one Nikon D850 and a 24-70. to Lately, I've been carrying a second D850 with a 70-200 F4 because the F2.8 lenses are just too big and heavy. And the ISO on most modern cameras is good enough. I don't usually miss the extra stop. And at night, I shoot with f1.4 aperture primes anyway now. Yeah. So that's the setup I usually carry, and it allows me to cover most situations very efficiently. But uh, the D850 is just high-res camera, good low light, shoots fast, does everything I need it to do. But yeah, all my equipment basically usually smells like smoke. <laughs> I spend about $2,000 a year getting lenses repaired, uh, zoom mechanisms rebuilt, cameras thoroughly cleaned. Yeah. Uh, now after every fire, I use these things called fire wipes. They're, you know, they're like baby wipes, but for decontaminating your face and hands. Yeah. And, you know, I'll wipe my face and hands down once I leave a really smoky area. And then I'll use the wipes then to wipe down the cameras, the butt, you know, the, the lens body and the camera body, and just kind of use a microfiber cloth to wipe the lens off to keep to minimize the amount of uh, particulate matter that is getting into the cameras and lenses. But uh, of course there is wear and tear and that's why having those pro level bodies that are weather sealed yeah. keeps them running. I mean, I've had water drop, like planes drop retardant on me and get on my cameras or FOSS check or yeah. firefighting foam and none of it's ever killed a camera. The only thing that's damaged my cameras at fires is me actually dropping stuff. <laughs> yeah, it happens, man. Um, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, with a lot of like younger photographers listening to this, um, like what advice you kind of give to them, like uh, if they want to get into the freelance world and um, kind of looking looking at your career, you've been able to photograph some really amazing publications like the uh, Nat Geo and the Wall Street Journal. Um, what advice would you kind of give to those younger photographers out there trying to get their foot in the door? Be persistent in network. Um, and, and I know those are sort of platitudes, but what I spoke to earlier is if you can 
uh, you know, work a part-time job or you have the, the privilege and the ability to live at home for a couple months or a year to save rent and sort of get your business started, yep. make sure you have some money saved up and have low overhead, low cost. You don't need all the latest and greatest fancy gear. You don't need a deck out pickup truck, uh, at least at the get-go. But, you know, keep your overhead low uh, is, is one thing that, that's good. And pick up work and be know your worth and be good at negotiating contracts. And that's why I recommend um, – that if you're in a photography program, if there's a business uh, class, take it. Do a business minor. There's some great uh, photography workshops on business, a, a couple that, that I recommend that are really good uh, about learning about that. But also for young photographers, um, you know, enter things like College Photographer of the Year, New York Times Portfolio Review. Like enter those things because so that's a great way to get your work recognized. And I know it could be daunting because most often it's you're not going to hear anything back after taking time to enter it. But those things force you to put together your portfolio, force you to evaluate your work, sit with your peers, be critical of each other's work, bounce ideas off of each other's, give each other feedback. Um, and don't be afraid to find these editors' contact info and reach out to them. I mean, on add them on Instagram, on Twitter, um, and just sort of uh, put your work out there. And if you think, you know, research a publication. If you think something's a good fit for someone, send them an email. Be like, hey, my name's so-and-so. I'm working on this project. May I share some images? You may not hear back from them. They're all super busy. Follow up again with them. Be persistent, but don't be annoying. And there's a very fine line between asking and being persistent and being annoying. And then I think that's one thing, too, just like it has to do with professionalism, is that you will never be faulted for being persistent in the photography world. But the truth is, is that, you don't necessarily need a gatekeeper in a publication anymore. A publication is a great way to amplify your work, but I started my project and still publish a lot of work just directly on my social media platforms yeah. uh, uh, just to kind of send it out depending on timing. But uh, again, for example, the reason I ha got my start like with a decent following on Instagram is Instagram interviewed me three years ago, and the editor who interviewed me on Instagram used to be at a New York-based publication, and it hit me up after seeing my work online mm. about wildfires, and the timing didn't work out, and then she got hired on Instagram, and it was six months later, she said, hey, can we interview you for our blog? So. Um, you know, people change jobs a lot. Uh, people, you know, will be an editor at five different places in a span of a decade or two. So it's important to, to maintain friendships and professional relationships with people because you never know where somebody's going to end up. Yeah, like you, your social media, I really enjoy it because you, you, obviously you post some photos up there. But I think the thing you do really well is um, you, you'll tell little stories and kind of you'll you'll write a little bit. Is like writing something you've always been uh, enjoyed? Is it like something you could see yourself doing more of in the future? You think? Because uh, just even reading your Instagram, um, you're pretty good at it. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Well, I've always loved writing, and actually, before I even started photographing, I, I wrote quite a bit. And this is silly, but I used to do like the like essay competitions and stuff in, in middle school and things like that. And I really loved it. So I've writing's always been really important to me. I've always liked photography because you kind of create something tangible. Yeah. But I've realized that uh, as much as the images, the words are also important to give nuance and story to those images. Of course, a good photo essay can tell the story without captions, but with fires, there's a lot of detail, a lot of nuance and things that I think are well explained in writing. And so, yeah, uh, you know, the first, the Terra Flamma book, there's 20,000 words of writing. So that, that led me to think that, Hey, maybe I want to write something, uh, a little bit more broad and it's kind of an open secret at this point, but I, I am working on a book, like a, a narrative book nice. that's uh, fully written. And, um, uh, it's sort of in, uh, the stages right now of, of, uh, I can't elaborate too much, but I'm hoping to have some news on, on that soon. But it's, uh, you know, I've been doing quite a bit of writing on that lately. And uh, the nice thing about social media and Instagram is it gives you, it's basically a way to write and to test ideas and to put things out there and see what response is. And it's 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 basically like a mini essay. I mean, the, the, the post I just did on the campfire was like 300 words. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have two or three paragraphs to get your point across. And so it's a really good way to kind of learn how to write uh, quickly and succinctly. Yeah, and with the fire stuff, I'm always interested, like, when people cover, like, one subject over and over again, I think it's really interesting, like, how do you kind of continually, like, push yourself, like, visually um, to make a, a compelling photograph each time, um, being, uh, you're, you're photographing the same subject, uh, how do you kind of push yourself, you think? Well, no, no fire is the same. Every fire is its own living, breathing organism, yeah. usually different place, different weather, different time of year. So visually, there's always something different. Mm -hmm. Now, as far from a creative perspective and how you frame and compose your images, that's something I'm working on changing. I really wanted to focus on firefighters themselves this year, but there just weren't a lot of fires out in the forest where I could get out with like Forest Service or Hotshot crews to really tell the nitty gritty, at least ones that I could uh, access within reason 
in Southern California, but, you know, I've got a medium format camera I've used to do some, uh, uh, you know, lit field portraiture at a couple fires when it wasn't too windy. And that, that was cool to try and mix it up. There yeah. was a photo posted of a house that got covered in pink flame retardant about a month ago. Wow. Uh, you know, trying to do stuff like that. That's not so much like fire flame night skies, but a little bit more of like the slower interstitial esoteric things on the side of the fire, sort of like what is left between the cracks and sort of these, these, these funny or weird or strange or sad moments that I see very often at fires. Yeah. Interesting. And, um, uh, have you been, do you do any video production out there? Like have you been recording any video or any things like that? Cause I know I do my- a little bit of video, yeah. uh, you know, if there's really crazy fire behavior, I'll shoot a 4k clip on my camera. I keep a gimbal stabilized DJI, uh, Osmo Pocket on my helmet now that shoots 4K for like first person footage, and I'll shoot iPhone clips here and there. So my main focus is still, still work. But uh, you know, one of the posts I did on Instagram this week was some 4K footage I took of a burning eucalyptus grove because the ember wash was just so mesmerizing from a motion perspective that I felt that the video captured the still images more. So would I like to do a fire documentary? Uh, at some point, I, I think I would, and and I, I would definitely like to explore that in the future. I just would have to think, uh, you know, logistics and storytelling angle, but uh, I, I think there's space for that in the future as well. Yeah, because I don't know about you, but I've been noticing lately, like I, I've done some stuff like Bloomberg Business Week and like the Wall Street Wall Street Journal lately, and I've been finding it more and more common lately. They just want even this like little bit of video content. Uh, half the time, it doesn't even seem like they use it, but if you found like more and more, even with like editorial, they're just asking uh, for you know, quote unquote content. You know what I mean? Sure. I think there there's always a demand. I think as if it's still photography, you need to be able to do video to some extent. It makes you more hireable as a freelancer. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the New York Times did a really great story up at the Kincaid Fire. Max Whitaker shot it. Krista Chapman was the editor. And it was a bunch of still photos. And it was intentionally shot for like an Instagram story to be viewed on a phone. So it was like images made ideal for vertical. And I think there was like a video clip embedded into there. I, I'm not quite sure. But yeah. it was designed for mobile. And it was such a well-done story. And I loved it because it was it was different and it was visually different. But you, you have to think about – uh, recording video sometimes too. I just think that it really captures the fear in a way that it stills don't always do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Stuart, I guess this to wrap up my last question, like um, this kind of any goals for yourself moving forward? Um, anything you're hoping to work on down the line, I guess? Sure. Well, I, I think that I'm very much interested in climate change and environmental issues. So I really wanted to take the fire project on a global scale for a while. You know, I I'd considered going to other countries to photograph. Um, you know, Australia's on fire this week. We've had fires in the Arctic and Greenland and areas where there's organic material. So Damn. I'm looking at ways that I can continue to tell the story on a broader scale and not just fires, but issues with, you know, where I started in the Salton Sea, water, the lack thereof, and also effects on people, the stories, how this affects civilians. So I think that uh, the fire will always be a big part of what I do, but I think that over the years, I hope to sort of expand on that too. Uh, it's exciting stuff, man. Well, Stuart, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Um, big fan of your work. Everything you're doing, I think, is really important. So uh, look forward to seeing what you do down the line. And uh, I guess for people listening, where's the best place to check out your work if they want to uh, see some more work, I guess? Sure. So first off, thank you for that, Alex. And thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Of course, you can always follow me on Instagram at Stuart Paley. S-T-U-A-R-T-P-A-L-L-E-Y. But I'll also post real-time status updates on Twitter when I'm at a fire. And uh, you can go on my Twitter profile, my Instagram profile, and if you're interested in purchasing a book to support my work, uh, there's links up there too. I've got a couple left, and I'll probably get some more for the holidays. But uh, that's the best way to, to, to follow along. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. I'll link it, and uh, thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks for your time, and have a great Friday. So there you have it. That was the Stuart Paley interview. Uh, I just want to thank Stuart for taking the time to come on the podcast. I've uh, been following his work for a while now, and just real big fan of everything he's doing um, with the documenting wildfires as well as his uh, commercial work, and uh, just a really talented guy. Um, so I can't thank him enough. Uh, definitely go check out Stuart's work. Um, you can check out his website at stuartpaley.com as well as his Instagram at stuartpaley. Um, I'll put the link in the description. You can go give him a follow. He's always posting uh, really amazing work that he's uh, working on. Um, so as always, I'll be having a weekly podcast every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, as well as my website, alexgagnephoto.com, and on my Instagram, at alexgagnephoto. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.